Great white sharks, they have been the topic of pop culture for decades now, and probably one of the first marine species that truly got me invested in the ocean. Today I'm speaking with a great white shark expert, Dr. Heather Bowlby. We dive into all things about shark mortality and her recent paper all about that, as well as their lifespans, what they eat, where they travel, and about her journey from biologist to great white shark researcher now. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode and make sure to check out Dr. Heather Bowlby's papers online. They're all available as well as on the oceanpancake.com show notes where you can see all about the 69th episode of the Ocean Pancake podcast. Every day there's a new news story about the crisis facing our ocean, whether it's the plastic issue, overfishing, pollution. If the oceans die, we die. Fortunately, we have plenty of environmental activists, marine conservationists, and eco-warriors who are out there every day fighting to protect our oceans and our Earth. On the Ocean Pancake Podcast, we're going to be hearing from some of them about how to decrease our environmental footprint, go plastic-free, participate in ocean conservation, cleanups, and even maybe some marine science. So, welcome to the Ocean Pancake Podcast, where the goal is sustainability and living a turquoise life. My name is Kat Andreskova, and I'm your host today. Let's get into this week's episode. Welcome to another episode of the Ocean Pancake Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Heather Bulby, who is the research lead of the Canadian Atlantic Shark Research Laboratory of Fisheries and Oceans Canada. Welcome, Heather. Thank you for having me, Kat. I'm so excited to speak to you. Um, I found you through, you know, looking for some interesting um, articles and publishing papers that have come out recently and I found yours um, which was of course about great white shark mortality. Um, Could you kind of tell us a little bit about how you got into shark research to begin with because it's such a fascinating area we would all love to know. (laughs) I have the strangest um, way of getting into shark research of anyone you'll talk to and it's actually because I like math. Perfect. Um, I, uh, I started in conservation biology and um, I deal mostly with something called population dynamics modeling, which is a mm-hmm. fancy way of studying why and how populations increase or decrease in size. And as you can imagine, with sharks, a lot of them are at risk. And so it's a very interesting question from a population dynamics standpoint. How can we increase the size of shark populations? Yeah, I I personally always loved math. So I'm very excited whenever Excellent. I have a fellow math lover. Um, I ended up <laughs> studying physics. Um, so I was like, that will come in handy at some point. <laughs> I, You know what? I bet you it has. I, I can imagine a scenario that it has. Oh, definitely. I am not afraid of any problem after the problems I had to deal with at uni. <laughs> So that's absolutely fantastic. Conservation biology, then into population modeling. Uh, Of course, that's a crucial thing for us to know, but I've also known or heard that great white sharks are very elusive. So how do you kind of learn about their populations in the first place? It takes um, quite a bit, very honestly. Um, Unlike terrestrial animals, you know, 
something on land, you can follow its whole life, right? Like you mm -hmm. can see it when it's born, you can watch it until it dies. Um, and sharks are fundamentally not like that. We have very little idea about how and when they're born, um, what their life is like, um, and how long they live or when they die, um, just because we can't follow them. We see them maybe um, in multiple sightings records, or we could take samples sometimes from them if they die or they're caught. But really, we have very, very little way of, uh, of monitoring sharks or changes in their populations. And sometimes, this is where math comes in, because you can use something called simulation modeling mm -hmm. um, to basically ask a series of what-if questions. And the cool thing about those what-if questions are that we can get the answers to, well, what if mortality is this high? What if white sharks live this long? What if um, they're distributed in these places and affected by these fisheries? Yeah, definitely. So you just put it into, is it a computer program? Could you explain it a little bit to people who may not have, you know, had the opportunity to be familiar with simulation modeling? Yeah. Um, basically what you do, well, I use um, a computer program called R, like the letter R. Um, and basically what it allows you to do, um, pretty much anything you want, but, um, but in this scenario, um, what I would write down is equations that describe an animal's life cycle. For example, sharks are obviously long lived. They live over multiple years. And in specific years, they might do things like have babies or mature mm -hmm. or, um, and so what all of my equations in my computer program um, in this simulation describe is how fast they do that. And there's rates that govern all of those transitions. So the proportion of animals that mature or the proportion of animals that give birth in a year translate into a rate that the population increases or decreases. Um, and so that's what you're looking at when you plug the ball into a simulation and then you hypothetically vary those rates to see what changes. Mm, and then you get a better idea of what is happening now or then potentially what could happen if certain things did change in the future. Exactly. You can compare what happens in your simulation model to things that are known. Mm -hmm. So for example, in the paper that you found, um, we looked at average mortality rates that have occurred um, in the white shark population in South Africa and thought about whether or not the population could increase in size if those rates had been constant over time. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, they weren't, they varied, but it gives some sense of whether or not you would expect increase or decrease following prohibition, for example, when white shark were no longer allowed to be um, taken in fisheries. Yeah, because they became a, a worldwide protected species. When was that? Oh man, I think it depends which protection we were talking about. Fair enough, yeah. There have been, I, I believe um, white shark is still the most highly protected species, um, shark species in the world. Which is pretty incredible considering most people kind of see it as the scariest one, let's, let's put it that way. 
I, I'm not sure what it is. Morbid fascination, maybe? Yeah. I, uh... <laughs> I mean, I've never seen one, but that's definitely on a bucket list. There, Everything I've seen from, you know, footage to documentaries to anything you read about them, they're really just super machines of the ocean. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I would love to see one in a scenario like on a documentary. Mm -hmm. The ones that I get to see are in such dark water that um, you only ever get a fleeting glimpse. (laughs) So do you dive and see them or are you on the boat? Kind of what is what does it look like when you're looking at these For us, if we're going tagging, um, we're definitely on a boat um, Mm -hmm. and we're trying not to catch the animals. And so they, if they swim beside the vessel, essentially, is when we'll tag them. Mm -hmm. Um, But if they don't, uh, we, uh, we get no love, let's say. (laughs) Fair enough. And do you see quite a few on like a tagging expedition or is it quite rare or are there areas where you know that they hang out? Is it, are they feeding or... What, what are they doing? What are they doing? What are they doing in Canada? <laughs> I didn't even know they were in Canada. You know I, I could have assumed a, it's cold water. There's... Hey, it is a fair question. What in the world are they doing in Canada? Um, the ones that we see, we're on the very fringe of the range. So mm-hmm. unlike in Australia, where you're kind of right in the middle of things for, for uh, tropical species and semi-tropical species, we're yeah. right at the edge. And so we only see um, a component of the population. And when they come up to Canada, they're really moving around. Um, They're trying to take advantage of seasonal food sources up here. Mm -hmm. We, um, as you might imagine, there's quite a few seals and other marine mammals, quite a variety of fish species. And and they kind of come up for quick jaunts in the summer. Um, So at the end of the day, um, we think they're up here primarily for feeding and it tends to be the younger and smaller animals that we see most frequently yeah maybe it's easier for them to travel further eat (laughs) or they're getting kicked out of the good spots potentially (laughs) yeah yeah it's so funny you can you know hypothesize so many different ways and you don't actually know what they're doing in the end but it's always fun to try and think that was a great white. I, I honestly wish I could remember the quote that's along the lines from a very famous animal behavioralist who said almost exactly the same thing. <laughs> Basically on the lines of you have all these theories and then the animal does what it wants anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it sounds like an absoluting, absoluting, great, absolutely fascinating job. Um Cut that out. I really like it. I get to think about a lot of species too. I'm going to put a plug in for other sharks. There are other sharks. <laughs> and, um, yeah. and so we also do quite a bit of research on poor beagle or shortfin mako, sometimes common thresher, those types of ones as well. You guys have the thresher shark up there as well? Yeah. Yeah. Again, northern extent of their range. <laughs> mm-hmm. But we do see them come seasonally off of our coast every now and then. Um, it's funny because you know here in Australia you don't really think of Canada as a great collection of you know sharks because I guess you guys don't swim as much necessarily so there aren't aren't as many you know reports of sightings coming out into the world but yeah it would be a 
incredibly biodiverse area because you have so much wilderness up there and so many species. Yeah, I, I guess um, I would agree with you about the ocean wilderness for sure. Mm. Um, the, uh, the North Atlantic in the summer is very, very productive. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's probably why we get all these visitors, but there's 20 shark species that are kind of known in Canadian waters, although the vast majority of them are seasonal visitors. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, there's everything from the deep water species that no one thinks about, um, like cat sharks, to, uh, to a lot of the pelagic species. We get tigers up here, um, Atlantic sharp nose, things like oceanic white tip, very rarely. Um, I'm not sure what they're doing. I think those ones are lost. Oh, sorry. <laughs> My son's just talking in the background. <laughs> That's not good. Buddy? I'm on a call. Um, as long as everything's done. Hey, do you have dinner made? You should do that. Okay, thank you. So sorry. <laughs> That's all good. Um, so back to great white sharks a little bit. You're mentioning the equations that describe their whole life. What do we know as like how old do we think oh age in sharks um <laughs> there's uh, there's been some recent research that suggests white sharks live quite a long time like upwards of 70 years so have a lifespan very wow. similar to a human's actually yeah that's pretty incredible and do they you know sexually mature similar to us humans also like do they have their teenage years and (laughs) well Um, they uh they they do consider sharks to have their teenage years they call them the sub-adult stage (laughs) Um, sub-adults sub-adults yeah yeah (laughs) i i think they really should have just gone with teenager (laughs) Um, more relatable (laughs) yeah yeah exactly if, uh, if the age and growth estimates are correct, though, um, white sharks would actually mature quite a bit later than humans, um, mm. in and around their 30s. So, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. 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 It would be quite a long time into their growth. Uh, there is a lot of debate about shark ages, though, because they're very difficult to determine. So the most Mm -hmm. common method right now is called bomb radiocarbon, which is a fun name for saying that you would take a sample of a shark's vertebrae and you would look at the level of carbon 14 and 15 and compare it to the deposition after hydrogen bombs started being detonated um, to say some, to match up those deposition levels to say what year they would have happened in and the match between what's in a vertebrae and what's in what's called a chronology in the ocean this bomb radiocarbon chronology is how you would estimate the age of a shark and that's where this estimate of 70 years came from Um, before that people used to just count rings on vertebrae and they mm-hmm. thought white shark lived to be about 40. 
Mm. Okay. Well, we're well, constantly learning. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I just found it, you know, slightly funny that one of the side effects or one of the things that have happened after the bombs is now we can, you know, more accurately potentially find out the lifespan of sharks. Like it's something you would have never considered <laughs> as connected. <laughs> no. Amazing the world works. Agree. Um, yeah, I think that's one of those unexpected side benefits, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, at least some good of it came. Now, now we get yeah. to know a bit more about the specifics of great white sharks. And I assume most other sharks, you can also check their ages in a similar method. That's the theory, yes. You just have to have a, a, chrono- like a, a record to compare them to that's meaningful mm-hmm. for the hemisphere you're in. So for example, you could yeah. send me samples from Australia and I compare them to like the coral signature up here and give me This episode is sponsored by Reef Rebellion. Reef Rebellion is a 100% organic cotton fishing shirt ocean wear company which creates beautiful fish t-shirts featuring red emperor sailfish crayfish and the coral trout which are iconic australian marine creatures on really comfortable shirts they come in short sleeves for 35 dollars and long sleeves for 39 dollars, as well as crop tops for people like me who love to wear crop tops these are so comfortable and I love wearing them on the boat. And whenever I go anywhere, we get heaps of compliments on the beautiful designs, which are drawn and designed scientifically accurate with beautiful colors that really provide a pop of color on the pocket area of the shirt. I highly recommend you check the reefrebellion.com, Reef Rebellion on all of the social media platforms. Since 10% of proceeds do go to reef restoration projects, particularly in Fitzroy Island, Reef Restoration Foundation, which is based on boosting coral reef biodiversity and resilience on the Great Barrier Reef. So if you would like to check out the sponsors of this video, it would mean the absolute world to me. Thank you so much for your time listening and check out reefrebellion.com. But do we know how far do great white sharks travel? Like, aren't Uh their ranges enormous as well? I love your mind. Um, <laughs> this is actually the biggest. Like, wait, what if they were away from the bombs? <laughs> exactly. This is one of the bigger weaknesses of bomb radiocarbon, which can make it inaccurate, is that for very mm. highly mobile species, where do you choose your chronology from? Um, mm-hmm. And so white sharks, they can move upwards of 10,000 kilometers in a year. So um, it's a bit of an open question. What's the best to compare? Yeah, because they've, you know, they've tagged sharks in South Africa and then found them very far away as well. So are those the same? Have you seen the same sharks up in Canada from South Africa? From South Africa? Absolutely not. Um, There's been... So it's just different. Okay. no. No, so um, so the South African um, group stays relatively local, actually. I believe they're even fairly separate um, from the population you see around Australia and New Zealand. 
And then mm-hmm. um, the population of white sharks that I think about um, inhabits the Northwest Atlantic. So just the North American coast. Um, they don't even go over to Europe. Yeah, I've definitely never thought about Europe having great white sharks, but I guess they must. (laughs) (laughs) Here, I'm going to go out on a limb. I don't think so. Well, they don't have, (laughs) well, if we, if we extrapolate from the other species that live there, I think Europe's just been overfished to the point where there's nothing big enough for a great white to survive on. That's, that's what I would guess. As well as, you know, other... The, it, it definitely is, uh, is a, good, um, a good working hypothesis. I haven't heard of any research on white sharks, specifically in the Northeast Atlantic. Um, mm-hmm. I, I just, I, I don't know. Um, I know that uh, the ones in the Northwest Atlantic are definitely separate from the Pacific Ocean, for example. Mm-hmm where Canada, again, is a very fringe habitat for any white sharks or, uh, in the Pacific. Hey, you still get to research them. That's pretty incredible. Oh, my goodness. I've had an odd one. I, um, so I started uh, and I got a biology degree um, from the University of Victoria. And my first mm-hmm. love was actually plants. I wasn't going into fishes at all. Um, but then through a series of happy accidents, ended up kind of focusing more on marine biology. And then um, I did a master's degree looking at lobster movement, of all things. Um, so American lobster, lobster okay. on the East Coast. Yep, yep. And then mm-hmm. I worked for 10 years on salmon um, and did my PhD on salmon recovery planning. And, uh, and dabbled a little bit um, with other diadromous fish. Um, I'm not sure you would have heard, you'd have the same species in Australia, but, um, but here there are, we have alocids, river herring, um, that mm-hmm. they come up our rivers in massive, massive numbers, like in the millions, some of the rivers. Um, and they're a very cool fish to study, uh, to spawn up there. Um, and then I ended up, um moving into sharks so it's been it's been a bit of a it's it hasn't been a straight line let's say (laughs) and I definitely went one I'm one of the few shark biologists you'll find who started working in fresh water and thought mostly about population dynamics in fresh water but yeah, as, as long as you have those skills, I guess they're transferable, especially with something like math simulations and population dynamics. They need you everywhere. <laughs> All the creatures. Yeah, that's exactly how it is. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Wouldn't it be lovely? Uh, it, it's, <laughs> I just keep trying to tell my students because I teach high school now, like you need to you need to do your math. Math is good. And they're like, no, I'm like, come on, please. It's boring. Yeah, it's terrible. It has no practical application. <laughs> well, oh you can yeah, tell that's, them. that's always fun. I'll tell I them. I'll definitely someone. tell them. I'm like, well, yeah. do you want to study sharks? <laughs> yeah. Well, I that's met someone pathway. who the only reason she got to tag white sharks is because she likes math. Yeah. I mean, I have another friend here in Australia and she works for the fisheries as well. And she's also a mathematician, um, you know, at, at uni, that's what she studied. So it's definitely more common, I guess, fisheries like their maths. <laughs> it's yeah. a lot of math. 
it um, it's because at least in Canada we have a requirement mm. for what's called evidence-based advice and what that means is you have to provide um, some kind of a probabilistic um, evaluation of how likely something might be and so you need mm -hmm. to say oh well there's a 20% chance of this happening or a 40% chance of that happening if you do X, Y, or Z. And because of that need for evidence-based advice, that's why you get all of us math people together because um, mm -hmm. we're typically working for government at least, we're typically tasked with generating that type of evidence for decision-making. Mm, that makes sense. So this, this great white shark research you've done, uh, what kind of kick-started it? So the paper is about current mortality rates have they been you know did you find that they were n a normal or higher than you know in previous years that have been recorded or could you tell us a bit about that so um so I'm just gonna check I've put out two papers recently on white shark I I think you're talking about the one about South Africa I think so yes yeah That's okay one. which is perfect I'll, I'll just frame <laughs> relative to that one <laughs> Perfect. Um, so, uh, so in um, in South Africa, there were a few kind of open questions about white shark, and the reason mm -hmm. that um, I was brought into a research group was because um, they were very interested to know how the population may have been changing after it became protected in South Africa and what they may expect about population change in the future under varying levels of mortality. And so it's important that I mention, we didn't know, like quote unquote, know about specific mm -hmm. levels of mortality. It was all assumed rates. And so we're going back to those what if questions, right? Yeah. Um, but they wanted to know, well, is it bad if, one white shark dies, or 10, or 100? Like, what level would we start being concerned at? And that's really what the paper is focused on, is given what we know about white sharks' life history, like how long they live, and how fast they give birth, they reproduce, and when they mature, um, what level of mortality is too high? And so we, we simulated all different numbers um, from no removals up to 100, and then incorporated a whole bunch of other what if questions. Well, what if they live longer than we thought they did? What if they matured earlier? What if their population was smaller than we think it is? What if it's larger? And looked at how um, population trajectory or it, uh, the abundance trend would change under all of those different scenarios to gain a sense of, like I say, how much mortality is too much. It ended up that somewhere between 20 and 40 animals is kind of the tipping point of mortality being too much. What are the current estimated populations down there? In terms of population size, there's only mm -hmm. been estimates from specific aggregation sites and they vary um, quite a bit. There's a very small one. Um, oh my goodness, I'm gonna have to look it up. 
um, I believe it's around 500 animals to um, quite a bit larger, um, around just under a thousand animals. And again, those mm -hmm. are focused on specific aggregations that have been monitored over multiple years. So an aggregation being a place that a lot of individuals came back to year after year. So in terms of throughout South Africa, I think the highest estimate ever has been about 2000 animals in the 1990s. So really not that many when you consider, you know, some other no. fish populations yeah. that are, there's millions of them. Or humans. <laughs> well, there is that. Um, <laughs> in terms of top predators in the oceans, they tend to have smaller populations than large. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, that's pretty, it's pretty incredible that we get to, you know, learn these things and kind of project into the future of what we need to, you know, potentially do. So has the conservation, the preservation in South Africa worked from what you guys have modeled or... So it appears that um, the prohibition that was brought in in 1991 didn't lead to increases in abundance of white sharks in South Africa. So basically mm -hmm. the population stayed fairly steady. Um, and with what we know about average removals throughout the country, um, that that again is part of the um, is part of our understanding of why there's that tipping point between 20 and 40 animals. You know, average removals being around 30 animals a year, um, and our simulation suggested the population would stay relatively steady at that level of removals and not increase in size. So, um, whether there was a conservation benefit, there there wasn't let's say there wasn't as big of a conservation benefit to the prohibition as people were maybe expecting, um, just because there was still that low level of mortality occurring. Fascinating. That's, I guess, contrary to what people would have thought or hoped, but maybe this is just their you know, natural kind of life cycle, which it's important to remember that for a species like white shark, any population increase would be very, very slow. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It would take, yeah, it would take a very long time to see meaningful abundance change. And the fact that we haven't, um, it would still occur over the time scale of 20, 40 years kind of idea. So, um, so it is possible there have been marginal increases, but they're just not measurable. Um, yeah. Yeah. So at the end of the day, there's, there is still a lot of unknowns. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, especially because even the populations are estimates. It's, as you said, you can't follow a shark and see all the shark buddies he's hanging out with and just count them. <laughs> well, it's true. Um, one of the cool things, though, I'm going to go back to the simulation, is mm -hmm. we can suggest that the smaller abundance estimate is likely too low. And the reason for that is because if the population was that small, it should have precipitously declined with known levels of removals, and it didn't. 
So all indications are that white shark are about as abundant as they were in the 1990s off South Africa. And so that means that their population had to be bigger than the smallest abundance estimate. So that's good news? I think so. <laughs> I think it's great news. <laughs> that's great. Okay, cool. Yay. <laughs> Sorry. I'm getting I a little... I should actually have a real conclusion for you. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. I mean, all of, you know, science and conservation, like it's like a, a solid conclusion or, you know, a nice no, we wrap definitely up because like it is reality. Yeah. No, but that's pretty, pretty amazing to see, you know, your journey as well as a, you know, conservationist to move into shark research and then be able to not only work in Canada, but help um, South Africa with their population modeling. So that's fantastic. Are you planning to let us know about how our mortalities and populations are going in Australia? That would be great. Um, (laughs) Then you're a worldwide great white shark scientist. (laughs) There's no, I have no immediate plans to work in Australia. Um, There's some very talented people on the question of white sharks in Australia. Yeah, we do have amazing scientists and amazing universities as well, because there's such a drive for it. Everyone wants to get into it. So it's, it's really nice. Um, Well, and there's a need, Um, you know, there's, there's always um, both the conservation side of things and then the human shark interaction side of things. And, and so mm-hmm. you have such an ocean culture that, um, that I could see there'd be good opportunity. Maybe I should emigrate. <laughs> well, it is a nice place to live. I will say that much. <laughs> um, so we only have five minutes left. So before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you the question I ask all of my guests, which is, what is the one piece of advice you would give to anyone who wants to either get into ocean conservation or help protect our oceans? I, I know it's a big question to put you on the spot for, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I think my answer would just be start. And mm-hmm. by that, I mean, there's a lot of ideas out there. And sometimes you can get focused on having to find the right one or the biggest one or the most impactful one. But from my perspective, I think just starting and doing any of them, you know, don't take your drinking straw or or deal with plastics in the ocean or um, go take the conservation biology course you've been meaning to for years or read a a book or um, volunteer with a local organization or, you know, just start. Because I I truly do think that all of those little actions um, accumulate into something very meaningful. I think that was wonderfully put. Um, (laughs) Heather, thank you so much for taking the time. Can can you tell (laughs) I was standing up on it? (laughs) I, I ask all my guests, so it's just fantastic to see the range of answers I get. And it's, it's always inspirational. And I'm like, yes, I'm going to go out there now. And there, there might have, there, there might be a course I've been putting off. So okay, I'm on it. I'll, I'll go do it now. <laughs> Thanks, Heather. <laughs> oh, um, thank you so much for your time. I mean, especially due to the time difference, you're taking time out of your evening to chat to us. So I really appreciate it. And I'm sure. Oh yeah, before you go, where can people find you or your research? Um, 
It was actually free to read, which was exciting. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, you, a, a lot of researchers, myself included, have um, profiles on what's called ResearchGate. So mm -hmm. you can find me on there. Um, I can also always be found through government email, um, which is just my name, heather.olby at dfo-mpo.gc.ca. And I don't have any other words. That's fine. That's fine. That's perfect. All right. Um, thanks so much. And yeah, hopefully, hopefully, uh, well, good luck in all of your future great white shark research. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Who knows what, uh, what questions will pop up in the future. If you have made it this far, I would like to thank you once again for taking the time out of your day to listen to the Ocean Pancake podcast. This has really been a labor of love over the past few years, and I'm so grateful to everyone who has taken the time to listen to any of my interviews with amazing marine scientists and other ocean lovers. If you have anyone you would like me to interview on this podcast, please feel free to get in touch Ocean Pancake on YouTube or Diver Cat on the social media platforms or just check out oceanpancake.com. I am so grateful to each and every one of you and hope that this has inspired you to go into marine conservation, ocean conservation, or just make little changes in your day-to-day -day life so we can help preserve our magnificent oceans. As always, I would also like to thank Graham Mose, who's the mind behind the tunes on the Ocean Pancake kind of soundtrack. I really appreciate him. He's an amazing artist based in Brisbane. If you have the time, make sure to check out Graham Mose. He also has all the social medias, Graham Mose music. So head on over and say hi if you're a Brisbane local. Otherwise, check him out online. Thanks you guys so much and we'll see you next week.